In episode one of Design EDU Today, Dan Mall, founder and design director at Superfriendly, joins us to discuss the ever-changing role of interactive designers from simply designing visuals to not only needing to understand an organization's goals, but help identify new goals beyond visual design and sell the clients on that vision. The conversation also goes into details on the approach of traditional four-year university-level graphic design education versus apprenticeships and the necessary skills from software to business that students will need to be industry-ready upon graduation. Hello, and welcome to Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary, screen-based, interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest, Dan Mall, is an art director and designer from Philadelphia, founder and design director at Superfriendly, co-founder of Typedia, the Businessology Show, and No Chains. Dan was formerly design director at Big Spaceship, interactive design director at Happy Cog, and a technical editor for A List Apart. Dan has worked with clients like Google, Lucasfilm, Microsoft, GE, Wrigley, the Mozilla Foundation, Thomson Reuters, and the Sherwin-Williams Company. Dan has also done presentations at conferences like South by Southwest, Future of Web Design, and An Event Apart, which is where I first met Dan. He's also taught at the Miami Ad School, the University of the Arts, and the School of Visual Arts, and was recently chosen to be a Net Magazine Awards judge. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So... The first thing I wanted to talk about um, and ask you about was, I saw your presentation, So What Do I Make at an Event Apart Atlanta? And it was covering your working process, your your design process, mm-hmm. and how it's, how it's changed to the, meet the demands of, you know, the modern communications and how we, and how we do that and how we create those designs so that's probably a gross generalization of (laughs) of your um of your presentation that's pretty good i like it so as as i was watching it because since i'm a design educator i'm just looking at that process that you were doing and i just felt like i'm not teaching that same process anymore i i'm still teaching this you know print heavy visual um everything all in one page process Mm -hmm. so can us like can you elaborate on that on like on your process for the listeners and then talk about you know why you made these changes yeah sure i'm happy to so i think um i think the world has changed in the last couple of years in, in a way that i think is fantastic um but it's but if somebody from the if somebody from 100 years ago dropped into this future, they, they would have, um, or into our present, they would have no idea what was going on. We have, you know, and, and even from, from five years ago or 10 years ago, you know, the idea of accessing a website or accessing anything digitally, you know, traditionally you'd have to sit at a desk and sit in front of a big screen 
and you know the traditionally the, the bigger your screen the better off you're doing uh and that's the way that you got information, especially from the internet. And in the last, you know, I guess five or ten years, that has changed drastically. Where um, people are getting information in devices that fit in their pockets. And I think, and and third world countries are are connecting to first world countries in that way. And and I mean, it's it's really changed how the world works. I think I read a stat from, I think it was McKinsey or something like that, that by 2025. The, the global economy will be changed by a fact by like three trillion dollars because of the impact of mobile um, and I think like if the if designers don't really understand that you know like you're missing a big thing in the world so I think the role of the designer has changed from a couple of years ago where I think a designer was mostly just like make this look pretty and make this look good and I think there are a lot of designers that do that um, both intentionally and unintentionally and um, and I think that the ones that are um, the ones that are sort of moving past that are going to have better jobs. Are going to have you know they're going to have more shelf life. They're going to have more relevancy at the at the jobs that they do. If you can understand that design is more than just making things look pretty. I mean, I think my my favorite definition of design is from my friend Jared Spool, um, and he says design is the rendering of intent. And like I love that definition because it it certainly encompasses things like graphic design but it also encompasses things like system design and and just thinking about how things should work and how things should be and i think that's really the role of a designer um and and so i think that's what designers should be doing in processes whether they're building websites or making apps or changing a business or figuring out how a city should run or designing a subway system you know i think all of those things are are just about learning how things should work and, and really being intentional about how, the, how those things work. So I think, you know, the, the thing that I talk about in my talk is how does a designer kind of shift their own mindset and also shift the mindset of the people that are hiring with them and working with them from, you know, you're just the person who makes things pretty to you're the person that can help me think through all of this stuff. You know, uh, so how do, so as a design educator, um, you know, we, we train them how to make things look pretty and we do our best um, that we can to to teach intent. I think we always have taught intent, mm -hmm. but I think what's changing now is that, you know, 10 years ago it was, and this is just, I'm making this up as I go, but 80% um, what it looked like, 20% intent. Where now I think that's almost completely flip-flopped. And so I'm just wondering how, you know, from your perspective, how much should a design educator be teaching to make it look good, to make it visually appropriate, and but also that to make sure, you know, teaching about intent and teaching about audiences and teaching about is this the best solution for the problem that's being presented? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, you know, because I think, I think part of the job of, of an educator, especially when you're talking about undergrad, you know, if you're talking about higher education, um, is you have to teach fluency, right? Because you can't you can't render intent if you're not fluent in in the format or in the medium. And so, you know, if somebody is trying to, you know, for example, help design something that helps you pay your taxes, but they keep encountering a bug in Photoshop, like it impedes their ability to render intent. So I think part of the job of an educator, especially an undergrad, is to teach fluency. And so you have to teach Here's how you make things look good. Here's how you get your head around the tools. Here's how you, you know, here's how you become fluent. And at the at the point where you stop fighting the software and at the point where you're like really fluent in it, then you can start thinking more deeply and at a higher level about 
about what you're actually doing. But if you're in, you know, if you're in there, you know, you're trying to design a subway system and you don't know what the marquee tool does, I mean, it's going to impede your ability to do that. Uh, my, my friend Ben Callahan, who runs an agency called Sparkbox, he has a great metaphor for this. Like he, he talks about this in the way that the jazz musicians play music. Right? So a lot of people think that jazz musicians are like informal musicians, right? Like they like, oh, they just play what they want and they improvise. But that's not actually true. It's that jazz musicians often know their music way, way more intimately than say classical musicians do. And they know where they can deviate and they know when to come back. But they know it so fluently that they can that they can sort of wing it. And they can come back to it. They can come back to the theme when they need to. They can improvise when they need to. And, and it's because they know their music so well that they can, they can sort of deviate from it and decide where to take a tangent and then decide where to come back to the theme. I, I love that analogy because um, I, 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 I can't remember who I heard it from. But a few years ago, I heard the comment that the designers, specifically of the like 60s, 70s, were orchestrators. They mm. they they took the typographers, they, they took the layout artists, they, they orchestrated all of these different aspects of the design process and, and had them work in cohesion. But I think today the modern designer is that jazz musician that, you know, has to intimately knows what you just said, (laughs) intimately knows what they're trying to work on, but also has that ability to improvise when necessary, when, you know, there's, there's gaps that are, that are coming up. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I love that analogy. Yeah, me too. Um, more on the, I have a couple of questions about, again, your working process. And mm-hmm. uh, I, when I, okay, so when I teach a web design class, you know, I, I start having them do, um, after they do their initial research of who they're designing for, and I have them gather content first so they know what they're going to be designing and who they're designing for. I um I go into wireframes, then we go into you know uh, Photoshop mockups, and then we start doing HTML and CSS you know mockups, proof of concept, before we get into final uh, production. But you have a different process, and I'm actually really fascinated by this idea of element collages and style tiles and how they kind of are replacing you know that that let's design an entire web page, you know, mock up and, and show that to the client. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, more? sure. Sure. So in the, in the talk that you're referencing, I, I kind of break down what I think a designer's, a modern designer's workflow could be. Um, and certainly not should be because I think everybody designs in a different way and you can go, you know, you can go any sort of way that, that, that feels good to you, that feels comfortable. I think that's, that's like key number one is like, if you're not comfortable doing it, you're not going to do a good job. So, so if you're comfortable doing a waterfall process, great, do that and do that to the best of your ability. If there are holes in it to you and you're more comfortable doing something else, you should do that. So I think like the, the, the subtext of all of it is design a process that, is, that really works for you and works for whoever you're designing for, you know, your client or your boss or your coworkers or, or whoever it is. Um, and, and, you know, or your teachers or anything like that. So the one, the one that the talk that I do is, is mostly like, here's what works for me, you know, and maybe people get something out of that and maybe it could inspire them on their process, but I'm, I'm certainly not prescribing it as like all designers need to work this way because this is the way that it's, it's supposed to go. So for me, the way that I like to work is, um, is a little bit backwards than the way that I learned where when you learn to design, you learn to do a lot of work, right? You like, you jump in right away, you sketch, you make wireframes, you 
do sitemaps, you do graphic design. Um, and there isn't a lot of emphasis on the thinking part of it. So the, the thing that I, and you spend a lot of time making a lot of mistakes and, and making good mistakes and making bad mistakes and doing rounds and rounds of comps and doing all, all sorts of stuff like that. And what I found in my work is actually the more I plan up front, the easier it is for me to execute something. So I, I kind of break it down into four pieces of a design framework. The first piece is that I think designers should plan more. The second piece is I think the designer should inventory more. The, the third piece is I think designers should sketch more. Um, and the fourth piece is I think designers should assemble more. So I, uh, I won't go into the details of all of that just because I think we'd be here for, you know, for two hours. But, <laughs> but I think if you spend time planning, you know, and what that means to me is some, I, I spend a lot of time writing before I design it, like as a good design exercise, I write about you know what I'm trying to accomplish, and sometimes I'll share that with a client, and sometimes I won't. Sometimes it'll just be kind of a manifesto for myself, but it it grounds me and centers me in what I'm actually trying to achieve, and um, and so I, I write through that that stuff and I try to articulate it because then if I can describe it to myself, I'm essentially giving myself instructions on the design part, on the graphic design part. So if I can write it, I just use it as, as a set of guidelines for myself when I get to, to comping. And so when I think, I, I think when you plan more and when you inventory more and you sketch more, and by sketch I mean you know, certainly pencil and paper, but also doing prototypes and really like trying to approximate certain things before you're doing the final thing, it makes doing the final thing really, really easy at the end. So like for me, if I'm doing a, a, a six-month-long project, I'll spend three or four of those months just planning, just like playing around, sketching, thinking, brainstorming, writing. And then the last two months is when I'll do all the assembly work. Because if I've made all the pieces that I need, if I've made like 100 prototypes of all the different things, if I've done 1,000 sketches, if I've written you know, 40 documents that guide my work, then putting it together is the easy part. And so that's kind of what I've found has been really useful to, for me is, you know, the time of doing something uh, is, is sort of the easy thing. You know, the time figuring out what you need to do, that's the hard part. And so, you know, I've been doing this for a while now, and so I have fluency with my tools. So I don't fight the tools anymore. But when I sit down in front of Photoshop and I'm like, oh, what do I make? That's the hard part. So I want to, you know, I want to really focus on planning that stuff out before I get to that point so that by the time I sit in front of Photoshop, I know exactly what I'm going to do and I can bust it out in 30 minutes. I, I love that you do the, the pre-writing. Uh, that is something I ran into by, it was a more or less a happy accident. I was teaching a motion design class and I had them, the first thing I thought of was, well, they have to write a script. Mm -hmm. And the, the pieces ended up being, even if they were poorly executed, visually i felt the content was amazing so i went and tried that for just like a regular it was a branding class and i just you know said you know let's start off by writing what you're going to design and i noticed that students when they did it in that case they didn't write a story what they wrote was this is going to be blue this is going to yep. do this and i was like oh this is amazing because now they can stop and say you're not thinking about <laughs> the story of this piece you're thinking about what it looks like already yep way too much um one thing about your your process um to go back to that was like again those those element collages and so i what was important for me when i, I think i was listening to your uh your conversation your podcast with uh with brad um mm -hmm. and you were talking about the 
conversations that you, the element collage when you design this navigation or, and you know, you don't show it in full context ends up creating a conversation with the client. And that to me is really important. And I'm just curious if you have any suggestions, like how, how could I recreate those kinds of conversations, those client conversations that these elements, um, you know, create in the classroom because like when you're in the classroom students are talking to other design students they're talking to design professors um and it's not the same thing mm-hmm. you don't have those same type of conversations that you would with a client do you have any suggestions like how how that build that into a into a class or into a project or something yeah absolutely so I, I have three suggestions and hopefully by the time i i finish them i will remember all three um so the, the first one is uh, is, is sort of like you, you mentioned context. And I think what led me to doing an element collage was I realized there are many contexts, right? So like I'm not designing for a iMac, right? That's one way that somebody would, would access the site. But another way is somebody would access it on an iPad. And another way is somebody might pull it up on their TV using their PS4. And another way is that they might use their iPhone. And another way is they might use their dumb phone. And the, another, like, so, so the idea of context I think we've assumed as web designers that there is a set or a finite set of contexts that we can design for. And, you know, the nature of the web is that there's not, you know, there's always going to be devices like, like, you know, my sites now magically have to work on a watch and I didn't design them that way, but they have to work because that's how people are going to access them. So regardless of what I thought, you know, or what I, I can't dictate that. So I think the idea of freeing yourself from a context, I think I just make that part of the conversation. So I start that, you know, the intention of that is to say to a client, there is no context here. So imagine this in an infinite amount of context. And, and in order to do that, I have to remove the context from my comp. I don't show them in an iPhone Chrome because that is a, a falsification of context. I don't show them on an iMac because that's a falsification of context. So by showing an element collage is kind of on like a blank white screen and it being, you know, a 4,000 pixel by 4,000 pixel document, like I, I'm saying, I'm, I'm leaving it up to you to imagine this context and that conversation is going to, is going to um, I guess, shape that, that, that for you, you know, shape that kind of structure for you. So I think that's one piece. Um, the second piece is that I, you know, sometimes you just don't have ideas for the whole thing yet. You know, sometimes you have an idea for the header and you just want to do the header. And sometimes you just have an idea for like one, one particular box on the page or a button or the way that some text is going to appear or a, a, a link style. And when you design a comp, you are forced to figure out all the things. Sometimes you're just not ready to figure out all the things. So what, what I also like about the element collage is that it lets you design all the pieces that you want. And, um, and I find that that's really liberating for a designer. So whenever I'm coaching designers or if I'm working with, with younger designers or apprentices or students or whatever, I'll just say, what do you want to design? And they'll say, well, like, I have this really great idea for a carousel. I'm like, cool, design the carousel then. Start there. Don't worry about the rest of it. Um, because I find that people do their best work on the stuff that they're excited about. Like no one designed a footer that was great when they weren't excited about the footer. But if somebody has a great idea for a footer, then they, then they make it really quickly and it's the first thing they need to get out of their heads. And it ends up being awesome because that's the thing that they wanted to design. All the rest of it is necessity. So, so when you're talking about working it into a project, that's the, that's the way that I work it into a project. Like what's, you know, what's your, 
what's in your head and what do you need to get out of your head quickest? Um, and that's the thing that you should start with. And when you, when you go down like a comp route, the thing that you end up starting with is like the homepage, right? Because, well, where else would you start? But sometimes you just don't have ideas for the homepage and your homepage comes out looking vanilla, because, but just, you did it because you had to get it done. So um, I, I've fulfilled my prophecy. I've forgotten the third thing here, but <laughs> those are the two things. You know, one is remove the context and the second thing is, um, is starting with the stuff that you really want to do. One of, one of my apprentices now, what her assignment is to design a site for the apprenticeship. And we didn't do site maps or wireframes or whatever. I was just like, I was like, sketch out what you want to do. And she sketched this like progress bar that showed each apprentice and how far along the apprenticeship they are. And I was like, cool, design that. So she's designing that. And we have no idea what the rest of the site's going to be. We don't know what the nav is going to be. We don't know where that fits on what page. But I was like, that's cool. We can figure out all that stuff later. Just design the pieces that you feel strongly about. And it's coming out awesome. Well, you know, that actually leads into my next question. Okay. You did it for me. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of, I call them pop-up schools. I don't know if that's necessarily the best term, but there's a lot of schools like General Assembly and the Iron Yard that are, that are offering to teach, you know, interactive and web design. And, and I think they are, they're proliferating because there's a big lack in higher education in teaching these skills mm-hmm. uh, in four-year institutions. And so you just mentioned it. So you're, you know, doing it. Uh, the same thing you're providing training through an apprenticeship program mm-hmm. so like what made you decide to do that apprenticeship program and can you explain a little bit how it works sure um so i i've always been interested in teaching people and i think i've always been interested in that because that's how i learned like i had really really great mentors and teachers and people that spent time with me to help me develop and so i like to me that's the way that people learn because that's the way that i learned like that's that's what i can empathize with best so my, my apprenticeship is, is sort of based around that idea. And you're right. There are a ton of things popping up like that. There's General Assembly and Code School and Code Academy and Skillshare and like all these things, which are really great. And they're, they're filling needs because people need jobs and organizations need that type of work. They need help developing things and designing things and like really being prolific in a, in a digital economy. Um, geez, I can't believe I said digital economy. Yeah, um, yeah I'm sorry. You can edit that out. No, it, it's, it's necessary. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I've used it too. All right. Well, at least I'm not alone here. But, but you know, we live, we live in a world where people access things digitally all the time, right? And, and, and I think those kinds of schools, they cater to that. But I think what they're doing is they're teaching trades, like they're t- and they're teaching skills, right? So you go to Code Academy and you learn Ruby, or you go to code school and you learn, you learn JavaScript, and then you can, you can do JavaScript. Um, and I think that's great. But one of the things that I think that, they, that is really difficult to do online or even in short format is teach the soft skills that are necessary to make good professionals. Um, and like you can learn JavaScript and be an awful employee. Right? You could be amazing at JavaScript. You could, learn, you could take a boot camp or you could do whatever, and you could be great at it, but you, may, but you might not be able to make a deadline. And then you're going to get fired. It doesn't matter how good you are at JavaScript. If you can't meet a deadline, you are going to 
you know, you're going to fail at that job. And so those are the things that is really hard to teach, especially in an online format, or, or even if you're in person and you're doing a, you know, a four-week course, it's really hard to teach that skill. It's really hard to teach pacing and scoping and pricing and all that stuff. So for me, like I, I was looking for a way to get really, to get much deeper in, in training. So my, my apprenticeship is a nine month apprenticeship, right? Like I, I look at these schools that are doing like six weeks. I'm like, man, I wish I could do a six week apprenticeship. But in six weeks, in six weeks, you barely scratch the surface. So uh, it's a nine month apprenticeship that I do. Um, and I, I generally work with people that have very little or no training at all. Um, so it's, it, it's not for like the junior designer who's trying to become a senior designer. Like that person can go get a job somewhere or can, can go get an internship somewhere. Um, they're not right for the apprenticeship. The apprenticeship is for the person that works at a radio station they, like, that realizes that they can't make a career or make a, li- a good living off of making $7 an hour you know, working at the radio station. And so you know, they're looking for a career or they're looking for kind of a way out of that or they're looking to make a, a life you know, out of it. And code or design is the vehicle to allow them to do that. So that's kind of what the apprenticeship is, is about. Um, and we start from scratch. You know, day one is if you're, if you're you know, there's two tracks right now. If, if you, can, you can be a design apprentice or you can be a development apprentice. If you're a design apprentice, day one is opening Photoshop and we go through every tool one by one. This is the move tool. The shortcut key is V. It does this. If you check this box, it does this. This is the properties inspector. This is what you see here. This is your layers palette. This is called, you know, these are called windows. These are called panels. These are called menus. So like start from scratch. From, you know, if you're a development apprentice, we start from scratch there too. So here's a code editor, download Sublime Text or Atom or whatever. Um, open it up, file new. Here's how you write your first line of HTML. This is what a tag is. These are what attributes are. This is what, this is called an angle bracket. You know, all of that kind of stuff. And we start, we start at the very, very basic of, of all of it. Um, it to me, I, mod, like, I, I, I tried to be very intentional about whether or not to call it an internship or an apprenticeship or whatever. And the reason that I ended up on, on, with apprenticeship is that I'd like to get as close as I can to like a medieval apprenticeship. You know, like, you know, in the, in the medieval times when you wanted to be a blacksmith, you, when you were 13 years old, you went and you lived with a blacksmith for seven years. Like you moved into his house and you learned, and he taught you how to blacksmith, but not only did he teach you that, but you had to cook and clean and you had to clean your room and you had to clean his house. And you had to, you lived with him for seven years and you learned not only blacksmithing, but you learned how to be a professional blacksmith, right? Cause you learn the trade, but you also learn the profession. And I think those two are different things. Um, and then after seven years of being an apprentice, you become a journeyman, like your, your, your master blacksmith says, cool, you're ready to go. So you become a journeyman and you work on your own blacksmithing projects. And then eventually you submit a, essentially like a, like a master's, the equivalent of a master's thesis, you submit a project to the, the guild of blacksmiths. And then that guild of blacksmiths, they evaluate your project and they say, yes, you are, you are ready to become a master yourself. And then at that point, you take on your own apprentices. You get an apprentice to come live with you for seven years. Now, I don't want somebody to live with me for seven years, but I'm trying to get to as close to that as possible. So the apprentices that I have, they're with me all day. They're in my studio, and they get to hear everything, and they get to see everything. So they look at my contracts. I do phone calls in the open. We do conference calls. Like, I don't have conference rooms or anything like that. I don't do private phone calls, like, with the exception of maybe, like, if I have to call my doctor about something private or something like that, but you know, everything is kind of out in the open and they learn certainly design and development. But you know, I, I also strive to teach them things like, well, how do you price a job and how do you meet a deadline and how do I get work done when I have a lot of distractions and what's the appropriate time to break for ping pong? And you know, what, 
what time should I wake up every morning to, in order to get into work? Like it could be stuff as basic as that. What do I do when I, you know, when I get commit the wrong stuff and I ruin the repository, you know, like that kind of stuff. And that's stuff that you don't get in, in online programs and, and like just cause it, the time is not allotted for it. So that's kind of what the, what I modeled the apprenticeship after. And I try to get as, as close to that as possible. All right. Um, actually that's, that's one thing that, in, in most design schools uh, or design programs, they also go into foundations and this foundations is taught by artists and, and designers. And that's the one my like almost kind of like my biggest complaint is that we need to start teaching them to be designers, not yep. how, not the specific skills, not even the soft skills. What does a designer look, act and feel like? Yep. So I, I love that you cover that. Um, you know, I, I have one, I, I know your time's valuable. So I'm going to, I just want to ask you one more question. Okay. Um, and it has to do with your apprenticeship in it, but it, and some of the things that are being taught in it, and it specifically is, I, you've, you obviously must have seen a huge gap between being a designer and running a design business. Mm. So I, I think this is maybe, is it one of the reasons why you started your businessology podcast show? And <laughs> is this another thing that, you know, why you started doing that apprenticeship, you know, like that disconnect? Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, so Mike Montero has he has a great story about this, and and I'll, I'll never forget him telling me this. I forget if he said it on a podcast or if he said it just kind of in passing in a conversation. But um, I asked him like, why does he write about business? You know, because he you know he writes he's written yep. great books and he's written a lot about you know how to be a professional, and he could easily write about typography or graphic design or motion design or you know any of those things because he's fully he's just as competent at that stuff too. And I said, well, why do you write about that stuff? And why do you talk about that stuff? And why is that your thing? And he's like, you know, we have a rule in our office that if you find something that's broken, it automatically becomes your responsibility to fix it. So if you walk by the printer and the printer's broken, even if you're not the printer technician, you have to fix the printer. If you, you know, if there are dishes in the sink, you become the dishwasher, even though that's not your job. Like if you see something that there's something wrong there, it's your responsibility to fix it. And he's like, and there's a ton of people that are talking about typography and motion design and graphic design and interaction design and UX and all that stuff. But nobody was talking about, about business. He's like, so I found that that was a problem. And so I took it upon myself to fix it. I think that's, that's totally the, you know, that's the mantra for me as well. Um, as I, I was talking to my CPA about it and we were, we both realized that we had a passion for talking about this stuff and not a lot of people were talking about it. It's only a handful of people talking about it compared to talking about topics like user experience and you know and, and graphic design and all that stuff. So we just decided, well, we we can do something about it. So we did. How much do you th I, as a design educator, I I I know the I know how important it is to be able to have some of these like, you know, this business acume. But I have mixed feelings about is that really something that should be taught in a design program, the business side of design? Because right. that means I'm going to now have to get rid of something, whether that's the visual um, tool skills or the, you know, talking about intent. Um, where do you feel that? Do you, do you feel that that should be something that should be going back to design education? Um, yes, I think so. Uh, well, I'm actually, I, I think so very strongly. Um, I don't know at, if it's worth the expense of something else, because I think, you know, we could fill a curriculum with an infinite amount of things that, that can be taught. So I guess if, if your question is more like, you know, like in a four year program, 
should I kill a Photoshop class in lieu of a business class? I'm not sure. I, I don't know because I think if you don't have fluency in the tools, I think then you'll be missing something that even if you sell it well, you can't really come through on it. So I think certainly teaching the fluency part is important. Um, I don't know if it's if business is more important. But the reason that I'm interested in, in it is because I've been part of many processes and I've, I've worked with really, really great clients and companies and agencies. And one of the things that I see across the board is that sometimes as a designer, you get handed something and you know it's not the best way to go about it and you know it's not going to produce the best result, but your hands are tied. So sometimes that's, here's a style guide. You have to use this style guide. And you're like, well, I could make a better thing if I didn't have to follow the style guide. But that's a constraint. And sometimes you fight the good fight of trying to, you know, like to, to push back on that style guide and see if the client will give you some leeway. And sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. Um, and, and there are all sorts of things within a process that constrain you artificially. I think designers work under good constraints uh, or, and I think designers work well under good constraints. But I also think that there are some artificial constraints that actually designers don't need. And one, sometimes one of those constraints is, well, we sold this project so we have to do this project. Even though it's not the best thing for the client, that's what we sold. So for me, I was always interested in the sales part because if we could sell the right thing, then we could do the right thing. But if we sold the wrong thing, well, contractually, we are obligated to do that thing even if it's not the right one. And, and sometimes that's when sales teams are uh, separate from design teams, like when they don't talk. And sometimes it's people have different biases, like your designer just wants to make something pretty for her portfolio, but your salesperson is working on commission, and so he's trying to sell as much as he can, you know, and not really worrying about the quality of that. So, like, there are all these factors that weigh into that and, and that, that play into that. But I think I was always interested in the business side because if I could be involved in what we sold and what we pitched, then I could, be, I could be confident that we sold the right thing. You know, and if we win it, I could be confident that we're going to do the right thing for the client. Um, I didn't feel confident that like, all right, well, if, you know, if, I, if I feel bad about this, well, I, I have the capacity to change it. So I would always ask to be part of sales meetings. I would always ask to be part of, like, can I see the contract or can I help write the contract? And so because to me, that helped me make better design work later on. Um, so because I wasn't being handed things, I was being involved in that process. It's the same reason that developers want to be involved in brainstorms. They don't want to be handed a design and just say, build this, right? Because, that, because what, if, what if you could do something better, but you're already constrained by something artificially? So I think that's the reason. Like I, to, to me, it's always been kind of a, prima a pragmatic approach to sales and the business side is I want to set the table as well as I can to do the best design that, I'm, that, that I can possibly do. And if, if a contract... Um, stops me from doing that, well, I have the control to, to write that contract. I have the control to be, be involved in writing that contract. And if a, if a, a brief you know, artificially constrains me, well, I, maybe next time I could write the brief so that it doesn't artificially constrain me. So I feel like it's part of the design process to set the table for you to be able to, good, to do good design. Wow, that, that gives me a ton more to think, <laughs> to think <laughs> of. I've got to figure out how I can replicate some of that in the classroom. All right, Dan, well, we're running up on time. So is there anything that anything you wanted to follow up with or anything you're working on you wanted to tell the listeners about before we go? Hmm. Um, it's okay I don't if you think don't. so. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, the thing I'm most excited about right now is the apprenticeship because I get I get a chance to work with people that are, you know, eager and hungry and, and you know, and new, you know, and it keeps me sharp to teach the basics, you know, and so I'm really excited about that right now. I'm going to be trying to 
publish more about that. I haven't really written anything or, you know, I, I've done, I did one talk at, uh, at Creative Mornings in Philly. Um, so th- that, you know, maybe if you could link that up in the show notes, I think that would be good. But that's the thing that I'm, I'm mostly uh, just really excited about right now. Yeah, great. Um, and yes, I'll definitely, as soon as, as soon as that's live, I'll make sure it gets into the, into the show notes. Cool. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today on episode one of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Dan Maul, for being so generous with his time. Before I go, I also want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases and updates about the podcast, visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Design EDU today, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes and Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve this show, contact me through the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU today. <laughs>